basement or garage full of old house paint that you know you'll never use? I know mine is. Avocado green, hot pink, antique white. That is a nice shade of white, though. You know, it's easy to recycle your leftover paint, stain, and varnish all over California. Most paint care drop-off locations are paint and hardware stores that take back leftover paint. Keep what you need and recycle the rest. Find a drop-off site near you at paintcare.org. Love Talk Radio. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Born to Talk radio show. I'm your host, Marsha Witeka. This is a very exciting day for me as I begin a new opportunity with Blog Talk Radio. Thanks to my friends, Sharifa Hardy and Ferran Dozier, for introducing me to the wide world of Blog Talk Radio. If you are listening for the first time, let me quickly tell you about my weekly show. The format is simple. When you have conversations plus connections, that equals community. Then add what's your story, and you've got the gist of my show. Everyone has a story. And how apropos, because today's show is all about stories. I'd like to introduce today's guest to you right now. Jim Mueller is the creator and producer of the South Bay Story Show. Welcome, Jim. Hello, Marcia. I'm glad, so happy to be here. I'm so happy to have you join me on my fourth show, Jim. This is outstanding. I would also like to um, welcome Tony Teresi. He is the award-winning stage director of the South Bay Story Show, Welcome, Tony. Thank you. And again, I feel very privileged to be on. I appreciate it. It's going to be fun. It certainly is. And last but not least is Wanda Maureen Miller. She is an author, and she is one of the storytellers performing on March the 24th and 25th at the South Bay Stories Show at the Second Story Theater in Hermosa Beach, California. Welcome, Wanda. Hey, Marsha, thanks for including me, and for short, you can call me Mo. I'll do that from this point forward. So I thought it would be important for our listeners to know a little bit about who all three of you are, and I thought, Jim, I would start with you. Could you please tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, like most people in Los Angeles, I came from somewhere else. I started life in Albuquerque and then moved to Rochester, New York, and lived there for about 30 years, and then came to uh, uh, Redondo Beach to live with my beautiful and beloved wife, Patricia. Uh, and so while I was here, it occurred to me that uh, there were not many ways to uh, entertain yourself here in the South Bay as far as live theater is concerned. And uh, I really fell in love with storytelling. And that's how I came to start the South Bay Story Show uh, way back in 2015. This is the fourth, this will be the fourth South Bay Story Show. And I I have one other little, just a little anecdote to tell to tell you and that is um, I'm a computer guy by profession that's what I did and I just had a tremendous uh, experience that would that will make a great story and I intend to make a story out of it because we just finished our website which is southbaystoryshow.com and I did it uh, via a a web designer in Pakistan we communicated (laughs) Via the Internet, I sent him all the images and things I wanted and my specs through uh, the website called Fiverr, F-I-V-E-R-R.com. And uh, Chauvin, which is his name, uh, built it for me in two or three days, and so it's up right now, and I hope people will take a look at it. Terrific. That's exciting, Jim. Tony, you're up next. I'd like you to share okay. a little bit about your background and where you grew up and what 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 brought you to L.A. What brought me to L.A.? 
Well, I'm originally from Boston, a small New England town, and uh, like most people uh, that want to feel they feel closed in, I I moved away because uh, it was just too small a town for me. So uh, I went to New York, <laughs> and uh, there I, I I started taking acting classes. And I was very fortunate to uh, start studying with uh, Lee Strasberg, uh, that is famous for the method uh, uh, term of acting. And uh, there is where I, again, started getting my roots for acting. So I did start out as an actor. And uh, a a cute story was I I, I got an agent, and I was going out a lot uh, for uh, parts, and I wasn't getting them. And finally, I said uh, to my agent, I says, you know, I went out for this Western thing. And he says, well, he says, I got the call back. And they said, uh, every time you said Haas, you said Haas and Bond. And I realized I still had my <laughs> new <England accent. laughs> and, and that's why I wasn't getting any parts because I would be saying, you know, I want to I want to go to the Bond and I got to get on my Haas. And they would say, thank you, next, please. <laughs> <laughs> so when I realized you weren't getting any pots, <laughs> and I wasn't getting many pots, right? So, <laughs> and so in New York, that's when I started formula. I started taking Shakespeare and started learning uh, to get in control of my accent, and so that's New York. And then um, finally, uh, I moved out here when Strasbourg opened up a uh, a studio out here. See, I even have it here now, here. I heard, um, it. I heard you here, Yeah, yeah, yeah. You sound yep. like Kennedy. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I can really, I can really turn it on if I want. But uh, so I moved out here to L.A. and and started doing some television. But I I started directing uh, actually in 1988. Uh, and in fact, I fell into it. I didn't. I never knew I wanted to direct, or I never, t- you, you know, I never went to college and took any courses that you become a director. And so I sort of fell into it. And that, and so when in 1988, I took, I, I did my first uh, stage uh, directing job. And from there to now, I've done 65 plus shows uh, of uh, stage directing. Yeah. That's a lot of, a lot of directing. And along yeah. the way I've had a, along the way I've had a cable talk show and, um, and I've and I've had um, I've taught acting and I've, I've coached actors, so I've been very happy and very fortunate in doing what I love to do uh, through Terrific. these years. So, so that sort of does it. I and want to give it. Mo. Oh, that's that's great, and we're going to be talking a lot more about that. This is a one-hour show. I'm so excited about. But Mo, let's bring the lady to the table. I would like to okay. hear about your background and your professional life, and what brought you to L.A.? So take it away, Mo. Okay, thanks. I I came so, from so far away that I could be an immigrant. Uh, I grew <laughs> up in rural Arkansas on a really poor farm, and I hated it. I was totally unsuited for it. We lived first in a three-room sharecropper shack, then we upgraded to a four-room. I hated milking the cow. It made me throw up. I didn't like getting my hands dirty. And, of course, I had a domineering father, and I didn't like to be dominated. So I did what all poor farm girls do. I got an education and became a college English professor. And I moved. I moved as far west as I could move without falling in the ocean. So that's how I ended up in L.A. Wow. I'm, I'm you know, um, both Jim and Tony are on the production side of the South Bay Stories show. But you, my friend, are on the performance side. And we're going to be talking a lot about that because, you have a lot of stories to share, and not that we not that we don't all have stories to share because we really do. But growing up in a rural lifestyle, we're going to be exploring that. Uh, you're also an author, and we're going to be talking about your uh, book to be released in just a couple of months. And I think that this will give our audience a chance. You know, the the beauty of an internet show as this is 
is that clearly there are people that are local that are going to be listening to this show and, and want to know, well, what is this all this South Bay Stories show all about, and where is it, and, and how can I get tickets, and I'd like to go because I know I'm personally going. But for those of you that are living in other parts of the country, I don't want you to feel that you're isolated from the conversation because in reality this was an idea that, idea that was developed by Jim, and why couldn't somebody do this? in their hometown, and we're going to talk more about the, why storytelling is so important. And I've always felt, that, you know, I've been doing my talk radio show now for nearly three years, and I, I do want to thank everyone that's been following me along that, that journey. Blog Talk Radio is new to me, and it provides me some um, alternatives that I didn't have before, which allows me to have people comfortably situated wherever you might be. I'm sitting in my office, in my home, and we can have this lovely conversation. So it's relevant that your storyteller show can be replicated somewhere else. And I just wanted to make that clear so that people understand that this is not just regional. Tony, I'd like to ask you this question because now that we've gotten to know a little bit about both you and Jim, I'd be curious to know how you met. Well, uh, God, uh, let me see. It's been a, a number of years ago. Jim might uh, nail me on the years. I'm not sure, but I was. I had an acting class uh, in the area, and uh, Jim was in the acting class, and we had a, a nucleus of about ten to fifteen people. And I had the class, and I did it for about two years straight. And so for two years, Jim and I sort of got to know each other. And uh, so on top of everything else that he does, he's a, he's a pretty good actor. So um, uh, so that's how we met, basically in my acting class. And from there, uh, there were stepping stones on things that we did together and, and projects that we did together, and, and including th- this uh, storytelling. So that's how basically we met. How many years ago, Jim, how long has it been we've been together? Oh, it's eight been years. at least at least eight years. And you know, Tony, tell them about your wonderful directing job of the Gin Game, because you and I produced uh, I produced the Gin Game, and you directed it. Uh, yeah. Uh, with me, with me as um, I can't, I can't remember the name of the character now, but uh, it was a wonderful right. experience in the same theater. We'll do our storytelling show in. Well, that, that oh no, was, kidding! That, tell me about that. Well, that that was one of the highlights. Uh, after the t- uh, basically after the two years, uh, again Jim and I had stayed in touch, and I said to Jim, Jim, I have a project here, the Gin Game. Would you like to, you know, possibly produce it and be in it? And the Gin Game. Those who are not familiar with the Gin Game, uh, it's about two people, two elderly people in in a home, and they meet. And all they do during the whole play is that they play gin, and uh, the gin rummy the gin you're talking about. Gin, gin, yeah, is that right? Yeah, gin rummy. <laughs> right. Gin rummy. Right. As opposed to something we're drinking. Okay, go ahead. Right, right, <laughs> right. <laughs> and so they play, they play gin rummy, and so uh, the arc of the whole story is that the 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 that the Jim's character thinks he knows how to play gin, and no no one can beat him. And in comes uh, this lady, and there's only two people in the cast, uh, and from that part on, they start playing gin on stage. And from that part on until the end, she wins every hand. And so mm-hmm. what happens to the character, Jim's character, it changes from being uh, sort of a, a nice guy, kind of egocentric, kind of I can beat you kind of character, to where the dramatics comes in, where he starts getting hostile towards her, and it gets very dramatic about because he's getting a little ticked off that he cannot beat <laughs> this woman, and mm. so that's the whole uh, genesis of the, of the whole play, and it's quite, quite it's quite um, demanding on the two because in rehearsal they not only had to learn their lines. If you remember, Jim, you you had to learn how to play gin because they had to play okay three three hearts. Uh, and, and, okay, two spades, and, and they were going back That's and forth. Right. And they were, 
they were going, and they went, I, I, no, no, I don't understand. The cards were going all over the place. So, the, 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 mm-hmm. bless their hearts, not only had they learn their lines, they, learned how, they had to learn how to play gin and, and get the funny. right cards down, and get the right cards down That's on their funny. lines. So that was a wonderful, wonderful experience, and Jim that's, did a wonderful a, job. That was a fortunately, I, fortunately, I, I picked up on my poker skills, and I was able to do a mean shuffle. Remember that, Tony? <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. I, said, I really oh, were in trouble. Oh my God. I really looked that's like great. I knew what I was doing. <laughs> yeah. Well, one thing yeah, for sure, so Jim, you have a tremendous. Um, vocal voice. You 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 speak really well, and I thought while I'm directing this towards you, um, perhaps you could just share with our listeners um, the history behind the South Bay Story Show, um, and why why do you think storytelling is so important? Well, Marsha, I don't believe that we should leave storytelling to uh, the mass media. Uh, to uh, the movie industry, to the songwriters, and all that, because uh, everybody has a story to tell. That's my theory. Mm -hmm. And I think I have a lot of uh, support for that because there are storytelling shows like uh, the Moth Radio Hour, uh, This American Life, that have been quite successful just bringing in ordinary people who have interesting stories. And uh, uh, one of the things that's really encouraged me is my friends all tell me when I start talking about this that they have stayed in their cars in their driveways to listen to the Mm -hmm. end of a story on the Boss Radio Hour. So Mm -hmm. people actually love stories from every, every point of the compass. And so that was my theory. So I decided, okay, well, let's do it and make make it a theater sort of experience for people so that the audience can come and they can uh, hear the story and see the storyteller and be right present with the storyteller, just as people used to do that in the ancient times around the campfire. Because, you know, people have been doing this ever since the human race began, and that's how they mm-hmm. entertain themselves. Now, mm-hmm. one thing I I found out or I decided was that music came in to storytelling very early. So I've always had a musical storyteller, and uh, I tell the musical storyteller, you tell your story through music, not words, but music. And so I've, I've tried to have uh, instruments, a solo instrument, to tell their musical story in that solo instrument's voice, uh, and I've tried to get instruments that are not, uh, you know, usually heard in a solo performance. For example, we started out with the guitar, and then we uh, had a clarinet for our second Five. show. Or And mm-hmm. then uh, yep. uh, the last show, we had a bass. And this show, mm-hmm. we will have Chase Jackson, who plays the vibraphone. And those of you who remember Lionel Hampton... You'll know that uh, he's a very popular jazz musician. He played the xylophone. The xylophone kind of, or excuse me, the vibraphone. The vibraphone looks like a xylophone. That's why I said that. And so mm-hmm. the the, uh, the vibraphone sort of went out of popularity for a long time. But now it's being revived by a whole generation of new musicians who are playing it in a new way and creating new music on it. So um, Chase Jackson was one of those new young musicians, and he's, he'll be there as our musical storyteller. That's exciting. So that's speaking. So yeah. speaking of you, you mentioned Chase. <clears throat> I'd like to take the conversation back to Mo now, because you okay. are one of the ten storytellers. And Mo, does your story um, have a name? Yes, it does. It's it's based on a chapter in my book, but it's called The Miracle. And it's about the day in the late 1940s when we got electricity. Um, mm-hmm. We also didn't have uh, running water at that time, and we never did get an indoor toilet, not until long after I left. But the day we got electricity was so exciting, and it changed my life. 
both for good and bad. It meant that I could read more easily, um, and that made a difference. And it also showed me something about my father that I did not like. Do you want? I I don't want you to, you know, give away too much of your actual performance conversation, <clears throat> but maybe you could just. I I think what I know a little bit about you prior to your electricity. You are still a very avid reader, correct? So you used a flashlight yes. to read at night? Yes, I did. If I had to, I used the flashlight and had to hide okay. it because my parents uh, disapproved of my reading so much. Interesting. How many, of the, how many were living in this, in, in, in this home that you had? That was you, your parents? Uh, five. Did you have any siblings? There were five of them. There were, there were five there were of us. An older brother and a younger sister, and we did upgrade. I mean, we went from a three-room shack to a four-room shack, and uh, my father uh, built on two more rooms. Uh, uh, one of them was just kind of a storeroom, but uh, it see. helped. That helped. Were they far- did they farm? Is that how they they were sharecropped? Or what did, how did they support the no, family? No, no. Yes, it, it was one of my grandfather's sharecropper shacks. They were actually built for black people, but they didn't sharecrop anymore. And my father tried to farm, but he couldn't really make a living at it, so he became a mechanic. He learned that when I he see. was in the Army. I see. Did you do your um, um, elementary school through high school in Arkansas where you were living in your community? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, and I got my B.A. in Arkansas and my master's. Uh, I had to work my way through and uh, got national defense loans. It took me about 10 years to get my wow. degree. Wow. That's that took a lot. a lot of, yes, that took a lot of courage and fortitude to do that, didn't it? Thank you. <laughs> I like to think so. And I had a child yes. uh, then also. So it was difficult and slow. Uh, at one point, wow. I worked in a, fact, a factory stamping numbers on stacks of material. Hmm. Um, and, but I took shorthand typing, and then I was able to work as a secretary. So that made it a little easier. I wore high heels. You know, you had a radically different background, it sounds like, from some of your friends. How did that affect your social life? Well, I faked it a lot. Uh, I started in adolescence correcting my grammar. And uh, as soon as I knew I had an accent, I changed it. Um, so, And then when I came out here, and much later I got kind of used to uh, being a city girl, and it became kind of an advantage. Uh, that's how the man that I live with now, uh, a retired doctor, that's what attracted him to me. He didn't know anybody who had been from Arkansas, so it got hmm. his attention. You and have, then don't you're you have talking a funny, to me. <laughs> yeah. Don't you, you see, have a funny you story? See how, don't you <laughs> ahead, see how great, great that is? I mean... Uh, Mo has such a fantastic story. It's like uh, to me, it's the it's the immigrant story, but it's from right within our country, immigrating mm-hmm. from what I would Dead call, point. and you know, I, a third world environment to the mm-hmm. first world. And you know, Mo lives in Manhattan Beach, which is one of the <laughs> highest class, richest communities <laughs> in the country. So you really right. made a long journey. No yes. kidding. You I know, have to do I a was lot just, of pretending. Well, you know, maybe in the beginning, but, you know, I, there's, isn't there a funny story about you um, and um, England? Wait, uh, what was the story where you were saying something, Mo, and people didn't understand what you were saying? What was that story? You know what I'm referring oh, do you to? Mean the quaint, you don't mean the Queen of England, do you? My not daddy, the Queen of England, I, yes. <laughs> when, when, I, when I got out of my place, which was often, or I tried to, 
he would call me the Queen of England. Who do you think you are? Uh, so, but Mo, you can call me Mo. You don't have to call me the no. Queen. Okay. So, I'd I'd like to know um, why did you leave your rural community? Oh, I had to. I had to get away. I absolutely to be myself. Uh, well, just to get an indoor toilet, I had to leave. But. Uh, uh, <laughs> But <laughs> I was different from everything that I was brought up to be, and uh, mm-hmm. I, I needed to get somewhere that I felt more comfortable and uh, accepted. Uh, did did so, your siblings also leave, Mo? Did your siblings go off to college, my, or were you the only one? My brother did, but I think he didn't finish. He went as far east as he could go without falling in the ocean, uh, he went mm-hmm. to Florida. My mm-hmm. sister was handicapped, and she had no choice. Also, my daddy took her out of school when she flunked mm-hmm. the eighth grade. So mm-hmm. she didn't have a means of getting out. She got to mm-hmm. central Arkansas. She married somebody. Uh, so that was as far as she got. Wow. Um you know, Jim, this is to you. Uh, your show has had so many amazing stories, like most that we're, that I'm going to hear coming up at the end of this month. How do you find your storytellers? Well, uh, first of all, I just say I'm I want to hear your story, and I say that to as many people as I can, uh, and. They start telling me a story, and if I think it's a good one, or, you know, even if I don't think it's a good one right away, I say, would you like to be on my storytelling show? And some of them say yes. (laughs) That's basically how Mm -hmm. it works. But, you know, like I say, everybody has has a story. And uh, if I just open myself up, uh, pretty soon I have more people who want to tell their stories than I really can have on the show because an audience can only sit there for so long. But uh, right. I did want to tell you that, uh, you know, I have to, I've, especially the first shows, I've had to encourage people to come to the show. And, but now I think that people really enjoy it, and so I've tried to make it uh, so that it's, it's a whole evening. It's not just coming to the theater and sitting there for 90 minutes and then going home. For example... I've decided to call the Saturday night show the date night show. It starts at mm-hmm. seven thirty, so before that you can go down to the Pier Avenue on in Hermosa Beach, which is right down the street from the theater. There are like dozens of wonderful restaurants down there. You can even stroll along the beach and then at seven thirty come up and and see the show. The wonderful date night. And then after the show, you can go home and do whatever you want to do together. Uh, and there then uh, the, Sunday, <laughs> the Sunday night, the Sunday afternoon show that starts at 1.30, I call it the post-brunch show. So if you're so inclined, you can go to church and you go to brunch or you don't go to church, but you do go to brunch. And then you come mm-hmm. to the theater. And after the theater, you can, again, stroll down Hermosa uh, Pier Avenue and Hermosa Beach. Now, the 4.30 Sunday show, I'm calling the Weekender because the show starts at 4.30. So you can cap off your weekend by coming to the theater at 4.30. Uh, the show will end around 6, 6.15. You then go down Pier Avenue, uh, walk down, have a wonderful Sunday night dinner again at the wonderful restaurants, stroll along the Strand and enjoy the, the late evening, the sunset. And uh, that would be your whole evening. So it's not only Sounds the show great. and the story, mm-hmm. but it's a wonderful it's evening for people. Sure. Experience. Sure. That's right. And you oh, know, our Tony. Hermosa Beach Look. is such a wonderful, uh, such a wonderful community Location. for people to enjoy. Yeah. It yeah. is, Tony. Uh, you've done a lot of directing. Um, how is this directing the storyteller show? These are not professional actors. How does this differ than differ for you than directing an actual play? Um, it's a big question, and it could take a half hour just to answer it. But well, you don't have um, a half an hour. <laughs> no, I'm not. So I'm gonna. <laughs> no, obviously. Um, 
I'll give it a shot. No, the, the difference, obviously, a, a, a play is a play of, with different characters, and they have dialogue, and I direct it uh, as such. You know, they, 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 they learn their lines, they learn their blocking, or I move them around the stage. And it's a story. It's a story that is a beginning, a middle, and an end that uh, usually pertains to two or three characters, and uh, that's the play. Now, in mm-hmm. this particular case, uh, where I'm directing a, one person, um, but I'm doing eight different people, that alone is uh, different. Whereas a rehearsal for play, we might rehearse three or four hours in one night, at the whole, you know, the whole play. In this particular mm-hmm. case, we rehearse one person at a time. And so we do different days where we bring them in. Otherwise, if I did all of them, we'd have to be there eight hours, which we, we're not. So when we bring them in, um, basically uh, we're, we're, we're looking at their performance level and seeing how, you know, how much work they do need as far as uh, articulating, projecting their words, uh, if they're animated or not, uh, we try to fix, or I try to fix that. So we're not trying to make them actors uh, per se. That 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 wouldn't that, that that's not possible. But we're just trying to explain to them that if they can get through that, that you are not re- reading, and that's something we'll have to tell you how we're doing. They're not reading the script, but they're telling us a story. And if we can mm-hmm. get, and you're telling it to the audience. And as if you were in your living room and you're telling us this story. So we try to use that as the bedrock or the anchor or to everybody to get through to them that this is what you do. And if we can get them to a comfortable level uh, to do that, then these stories come alive. And I just tell them, you know, there are certain lines or there are certain words that are maybe need a little punch here or there. Or maybe uh, you need to stop and pause a little bit, uh, breathe, uh, let the audience hear that last line. Think little things like that. So, sure. uh, so, and it's, so it's intimate. I am directing a, a one-on-one, and uh, but doing it eight different times for eight different character, eight different stories, and it's quite exciting. It really is. It so, sounds like it. Yeah, it's it's really exciting and. You know, what's, what's, what I, because Mo is one of those people you're directing. Um, uh, Mo, mm-hmm. you mentioned that you were a college professor. Uh, what did you teach? I taught uh, some literature, and then when I mm-hmm. started uh, publishing textbooks, I kind of had to teach what I was uh, writing. So I, I ended see. up teaching mostly developmental reading helping students read better. And, of course, I related to that. So, Well, do you think that because of that, that this experience will help you to perform on stage because you have spoke in front of students and taught? Do you think that that's an advantage? <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. I'm not sure I can achieve what Tony is talking about, uh, but it certainly helped me overcome some shyness and insecurity. Uh, the teaching mm-hmm. did, uh, but you can take the girl out of Arkansas, but you can't get all the Arkansas out of the girls, so I'm still a little bit shy. I yes. hope my voice will be okay by then because I'm still nasally and snivelly from a cold, but uh, yes. it did did help me project. If I may, can you want to add something? Yeah, go ahead, Tony. Yeah, I'd like to add something to to Maureen as far as directing her or working with her. Uh, There are some people that I call natural, that they're just open, that they can come get on the stage and just, you know, be be alive, know how to project and all of that. And as soon as I met uh, Mo, uh, I knew that that's what I was getting in her. She's a very animated, very funny uh, lady. And so... I knew right away that she had that going for her and that I wouldn't have oh, to work thank you. very very hard getting her animated or or just being alive so the audience can connect with her. So Mo is a natural. Mo is a natural. Thank you. I hope I won't let you down. You and won't. you know, yeah, let me... thing, Tony, go ahead, Jim. I was just going to say, um, on our website, com. We have a video, 
And if people are interested, they can go on there and watch the video and see uh, Mo because uh, she has a little a little part in there. And you can see her and hear her talk, and you'll I think you'll be very charmed. Well, and, and the she, by the way, she, gonna... she eats yeah. fried she eats fried squirrel too. I know. Yeah, I was but... going to talk about that maybe, <laughs> but you know, what's so, what's so interesting about this, and for the audience to know a little bit of the background, Jim and I have known each other for quite some time now. We've done three storyteller shows. We did the lawn bowling show. So I have a connection to you personally, Jim, but I've never met Mo. And I've never, I've, I actually met Tony at the last pr- presentation, but he was very, very busy. But in the case of Mo specifically, I've spoke with Mo enough on the phone and we have communicated back and forth. She's a terrific editor, I might add. She ha- Mo, you have so much personality that if you just stand up on that stage and find me in the audience, all right, I'll wave at you. You can just talk because you are that engaging. And I absolutely agree Thank you. that you will be Thank a natural because you're a storyteller. Um, I, just, I just think that that's just terrific. Jim, have you ever thought about actually performing in your own show? Well, yes, in fact. Uh, this this show, I was going to tell a story. I gave uh, Tony a story about plumbing, and he didn't uh, think that was going to work. Uh, so uh, then I, then I, I showed him a story. Funny. <laughs> I would have. That yeah. would have been impressed just that you had plumbing. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> There's a connection there. Oh, that's funny. Then, and oh, then, so. Uh, so but then I showed him a story that I did about my first kiss, and he liked that one. But uh, so, but we have a whole yes, uh, that in fact I really love that one too. But anyway, um, we have a, a, a lot of good storytellers this time, so I don't think we're going to need me. Uh, I try to kind of stay off the show because I don't want it to be the Jim Mueller show. I want it to be. Uh, the show about all the other, all the great storytellers we have and the great stories. And one thing we try to do, Tony and I have worked very hard together to make the atmosphere so that it's very intimate. Our theater yes, is, it is very small, uh, and it uh, it uh, brings the audience right to the storyteller. And we have the storyteller on a bare stage. We don't try to gussy things up with lights and you, you know, all kinds of mm-hmm. fancy stuff. It's just the person telling the story directly to the people. And uh, these stories are so good that you can feel, it's almost pal- palpable, the connection between the storytellers and the people in the audience. I, I completely agree with you. Um, to just, I'm going to divert the conversation just for a moment um, because as I watch the clock, I want to make sure that we get to this one other subject before we bring it back to storytellers. And that is, Mo, you, you are an author. You, you've, done, you've done quite a bit of writing, and I was just thinking maybe we could spend just a little bit of time about that. When did you first start writing? Uh, my first memory of writing was in the third grade, uh, and I plagiarized wow. a story I'd read and put it on the teacher's desk, and she read it out loud, and the class was impressed. But this cousin of mine knew that where I got it, so she brought the story up, and she outed me. So I didn't oh, do that again. But, no, uh, that, was a, that was a lesson. <laughs> but I found that I had enough material. I didn't need to borrow. Um, so I published five books uh, beginning in 1976. Uh, the mm-hmm. first one was a, a historical novel that I was kind of assigned. I got $20,000 advance, and I did it for the money. And the textbooks mm-hmm. also, I kind of fell into it. and um, Two of them did quite well and went into five editions. So that took up a lot of my time, and it was very tedious but I got started writing my stories probably in the 80s. And I uh, I've written over 3,000 pages. So mm. I had to cut it a bit. So my book, Last Trip Home, this last 
last book, this final book, um, mm-hmm. is about 335 pages with, uh, with wow. pictures. And it's called The Last Trip Home, correct? Right, right. And it's about... Can you just tell said, us I've a little... A, yeah, oh, what's it about? Sure, uh-huh. sure. I, I've had a long life, so I had to... I had to concentrate on mm. this one area that's different from that of most people. So it's about growing up on the farm and escaping the farm, getting an education. Uh, I have a clan husband in there whose sheet I burned and uh, I got the <laughs> hell out. But what, I, but what I found is that I had to keep going back and I thought maybe each trip would be my last trip home but I was drawn mm. back to help out my mother and my sister, and um, I still have uh, some of the land, my brother and I do, uh, and I go back and look at it. Uh, I have a cousin who leased some of the land and is growing cows, so if I want to, I can go you back grow, and wait a minute. Cows uh, hold on. Wait, wait, yes. wait, wait. How do you, how do you <laughs> grow a cow? Did you grow I, a cow? I, I'm sorry. I, I leased some land so that he could pasture his cows. I may have oh, said okay. grow, but you can grow them. I mean, you can grow them. They become they're calves. Okay. And they they mm-hmm. grow up. That's funny. Uh, but in any case, um, I have relatives back there, and uh, I like to see them. I care about them, and um, mm-hmm. I sure do miss that fried squirrel, especially the brains. They're the oh, brain, God, you Mo. just can't get that here. Probably the nearest. Not. I don't think you're going to find that in Whole Foods. Yeah, I thought I saw that at Ralph's the other day for $3 a bushel. <laughs> get them, Mo. You know what? Uh, Mo, i got to tell you something. Yes. I feed the squirrels that come into my yard. I've named them. <laughs> I can't imagine Sylvia sitting on your plate. I'm just saying. Um, okay, uh, but I want this, I want hey, to ask Mo, you, was it? Mo, yes. wait, wait a minute, Marcia. Let me ask Mo. Sure. How do you how do yes. you cook a fried squirrel? I mean, do you put it in a frying pan, or do you put it on a spit, or you just throw it in the fire? Oh, <laughs> oh you ignorant city boy! You have to skin <laughs> it and gut, and you have to gut it. Uh, then you cut it up and you you bat you put batter on it. And then you fry it in lard. Wow! I'm hungry. Everybody ready for lunch? We we just lost twenty percent of our we just lost twenty percent of our listeners right now. Oh my goodness! You know it's really funny because. Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say you don't want to hear the rest of my animal stories. I'm sure, like my daddy shooting my brother's dog because it was sucking eggs. So, uh, yeah, Jim wouldn't let yeah. me tell that story. I'm going to come back on that one, too. Um, what, what I was going to ask you is, um, was it hard to write something about that was so close to the bone for you? Oh, I mean, where, where, hell, you? yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, it was, I imagine but it, it was. was. cathartic. It was cathartic. Uh-huh. And, uh but now that it's about to be published and I think about people I know reading it and knowing about my life, it's like naked, walking down the street naked and with all the sags and wrinkles showing. And I'm reliving a lot of it just thinking about people reading it. So yeah. um, I'm hoping I'll get you know, over that. You know, Marsha, I, I want to say that uh, – uh, Mo just mentioned that uh, writing her story is cathartic. And, you know, that's common to a lot of the storytellers on our show. They come to mm-hmm. me and they have the story and they're willing to tell it to me. And then I say, oh, but you've got to tell it to an audience. And not only that, but you have to create an emotional connection. So you really can't hold anything back. And, you know, at first they're intimidated by that. Uh, they don't want to reveal uh, personal things. But if they can finally get over that hump, then they find that the the exercise or the the act of getting up in front of an audience and telling their personal story and feeling that connection with people, because, you know, people understand and they have the same emotions and experiences in common, just a little different 
uh, you know, a little different flavor. And uh, when our storytellers feel that connection and they feel the audience mm-hmm. with them, it really is therapeutic. I have heard people say, I'm so glad I told that story. I've had to get that out. It, it made me feel so much better. You know, Jim, in saying that, I know because um, I watched your clip, which was really um, inspiring, you have, you have a, um, a Vietnam veteran speaking one, as one of your storytellers. Is that correct? Yes, right. Yes. Dave Cook. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, and depending he, upon. I was going to say, he, he has ahead. a story of, of uh, comradeship. Mm-hmm. And uh, how his how his comradeship with another Vietnam veteran that he met here in California and palled around with uh, helped him find a path to uh, a good life, to a, a productive life, because uh, he has PTSD, pretty severe case, mm-hmm. and he uh, was going kind of down a bad path. And being with this other buddy and seeing, you know, the other the the effect on the other guy led Dave to a different life that has been very positive for him. So it's a wonderful story of cure, you know, re, um, redemption uh, from mm-hmm. that awful experience of combat in Vietnam to, uh, you know, a, a, a good and decent life in uh, in a, with a family and, and, and everything that's good in life. So it's right. a great story. Um, Mo, I'm curious because I know that these stories can't go on forever. Is, is your story <laughs> seven to ten minutes? How long is your story? Uh, it was ten and a half, but I've been trying to cut it to seven. Uh, okay. And it's hard to do was that, that hard? because it's hard hard to be objective about what somebody will be interested in, but I'm doing it. I, I would imagine when, when your stories, and all of the storytellers, when your stories are so rich, um, I imagine that it is hard to pare it down to that seven-minute mark. Do you find that you're going to be able to memorize it? Are you going to no, read I it? No, I won't be. I'll, ha- I'll have to read most of it. Sorry, Tony. Uh, because uh, I might have Alzheimer's like my mother. I don't think I can remember it all. Uh, but I will try to connect with the audience as much as I can. Uh, but I'll have to read most of it. Well, let, let I know, Mo, in I would... Go ahead, Tony. You may say something about well, that. I, no, I want to say, and to Mo, too, yeah, I wanted to correct her. We don't want uh, our people to memorize their their, their, their story uh, because then, you know, they're fighting for words sometimes in their head. So that paper in front of them is there for them to to read off of so they stay connected and, and so they don't have to memorize. So we take that pressure off their shoulders to memorize uh, their, their words. But they get so familiar with their their, their words because uh, they've had it now for five or six weeks. It's almost like mm-hmm. memorization. So they can come off with the page and sort of say, you know, they, they know what that line is. But then th- th- that script is there in front of them definitely to go back down and pick up uh, pick up the story. So don't worry, Wanda, we don't want you to memorize it. <laughs> okay. Uh, but if I can uh, just add something here. Uh, uh, Tony and Jim both shocked me and scared me to death because they told me the last time I saw them that I wouldn't have a podium to hide behind. Mm-hmm. So right. I have to... <laughs> worry about all kinds of things like sucking my stomach in and things that oh, are likely right. to distract me. <laughs> <laughs> I have to worry more about what I'm going to wear. <laughs> the thing, oh, yes. The thing, if I may again add on the podium, we realize that, you know, the podium, uh, as speakers know, and I'm sure, uh, Masha, you know the same thing, is it's, it's sort of like a, uh, a wall between, we feel a wall between yep. the person speaking and the audience. So we take that away so that they are there, uh, bare on stage, if you, uh, not, you know, to figuratively speaking. And that helps the intimacy for both the audience and the speaker. And uh, so 
that there is definitely thought out. And when we said no podium, we knew that because, again, it's more intimate uh, rather than having them hide behind a podium. So that's my input on that. It's all, <laughs> it's I'd like to add cool. something there. Very cool. As It is cool. And, and as an audience member, so somebody on this side of the stage, and Please. like I said, this is going to be my third show, mm-hmm. what you just said, Tony, and I know that it's by design. It's not a mistake. You and Jim, work, you collaborate to do this. And um, there is an intimacy. There is a drawing into the story. Uh, and you hear the giggling if, if, if that's appropriate during the story. You know that right. there will be people in the audience that you actually know. Um, I, mm-hmm. I know that... I was able, I was fortunate enough to suggest not only your music person with Corbin Jones last uh, time, Jim, but when Jabari was speaking on the stage, he was somebody else that I knew that I, I knew could tell a great story. And I think it's important that people know that there are all ages and genders and ethnicities in these stories. And that's what, it's almost like just sitting in and listening to a snippet of a book you want to know more about, which Wanda's written, which Mo's written. And it, it is compelling. And you find yourself, when the whole show is over, searching out that one person to say, I want to know more about you. You know, the part yeah. when you said such and such and such and such. Oh, my God. Yeah. You know, you, you feel very connected. And, Mo, I would say this as well. While people always have those pieces of paper in front of them as their, let's call it cheat cheat for lack of a better term, I've got them in front of me right now. As you and, well, as we are all okay. speaking on the radio, I'm prepared with a script to, to work us through the show when we have, you know, a little over eight minutes left in the hour. I kind of know the timing. But the, but the important thing is nobody knows your story better than you. The harder part is not telling your story, it's probably condensing it. I would think for me that would be the most difficult part is how do I bring it together in a short period of time, and I'm certain that you will. I, I have no doubt that you will. Did you want oh, to add something? We definitely. Either one of you? We, I couldn't help but wonder if you had your belly sucked in, Marsha, when you were talking there. Uh, <laughs> no, you know the cool yeah, thing about see. not being visual? You don't even know yeah. what I am wearing right now. Yeah, um, I know. You could be butt naked true. for all I know. Well, yeah, that's the classic question. What are you wearing? <laughs> uh, uh, well, listen. I want to uh, tell you. Yes. I was going to tell you, Mo, Mo, Mo doesn't have to worry about sucking her belly in. She plays tennis about 20 times a I week. Know. So she's I know. she's in pretty good shape. Yes, she's, she is. she's in I, pretty I, good shape. I was going to mention that as well. Um, um, Mo, I just want to make sure that we get this in here before all of a sudden it's like, oh, my God, we're out of time. Um, I wanted to come back to your book just for a moment and – because it's going to be available. So we, we've talked about um, how people can find the South Bay Stories Show.com online now. That's the www that we all have come to know and love. Um, how do people get to know about your book, and why do you call it a memoir on the front and a hybrid memory novel on the inside? I don't explain that to me. <laughs> okay, that's one of my worries. That's right up there with feeling like I'm walking down the street naked with my wrinkles showing uh-huh. that it's called a memoir. But back to how you can get my book. Uh, it's uh, available for pre-order on Amazon.com now. And, um, and I have a blog, which uh, you could uh, uh, learn a little Why bit more Why don't you say the name me. of the blog, Mo? <clears throat> oh, golly. Say the name of your w- blog. It's W.M.O. Miller, uh, period, wordpress.com. Right, it's the wordpress. I've forgotten the other question now. Um, Well, why did you call it? You were talking about being a memoir. Yes, right. Well, it started out strictly memoir, total Mm -hmm. truth uh, that I hand-wrote in journals. And then 
as I tried to polish it, to publish it, um, I tried to scenify. It was almost in essay form. So I tried to write scenes and um, uh, novelize it a bit to make it more interesting and also to protect people that are still alive uh, and mm-hmm. maybe to protect myself. But I feel like I didn't, I feel as if I did not protect myself much. Uh, but I was going to call it an autobiographical novel that seemed more honest, but my publisher insisted on memoir. So um, I I at least was able to acknowledge that it's uh, partly fictionalized. I wrote composite characters for some of the people who are still alive, but it's Mm -hmm. 95% true. Could you see this being a screenplay at some point? (laughs) <laughs> oh, maybe a few people have said that, but uh, mm-hmm. I wouldn't write it. Uh, I did write uh, Billy Bob Thornton, uh, who grew up in Arkansas. He actually <laughs> went to the same school as my second husband, and it was a long shot to write him. But I thought, what the hell, why not? And I told him he could write the screenplay. If he liked it, he could play my daddy. But did he respond a, to I you? Think that's a, no, that's no. pretty. He did not. Okay. Well, he no. might be listening. Who knows? Um, Perhaps he will. I, I'm just curious because I'm keeping an eye on the clock. When you guys now, I know a little bit about Jim, so I kind of already know this answer. But when you guys are not writing, producing, directing, blah blah blah, we'll start with you, Tony. What do you like to do for fun? <laughs> that wasn't in the script. That wasn't a question I didn't think you were going to ask. You're right. But, but, You're yeah. right. Well, because we've been kind of jumping over the script, we kind of got out of order. So I just thought, screw it, we're moving forward. Um, okay. Well, my other things that I keep pretty quiet to myself. I like to sketch and draw and watercolor. Oh. And uh, another one of my hobbies, I I do magic. So um, oh, one of my things is hoping that maybe. Soon I can get on stage and do some magic uh, for some people. So I do magic. Nice. And um, basically that's uh, that's it. I, uh, mostly, though, it's the arts. You know, I, I, as I said, mm-hmm. uh, I, I just finished a play right now, um, Arthur Miller's The Price, which just closed a couple of weeks ago. And, and and in the back of my mind, I, I've thought about going back on stage as an actor once more before I I uh, uh, go back to Massachusetts or something. I don't know. Okay. So that, that's what I do. You know, I know, Tony, I mean, I know that Jim is a lawn bowler. I mean, I know mm-hmm. that about you, Jim, because that's something that you enjoy. And I'm still keeping my eye on the clock, and I want to provide enough time to talk about next week's show. But briefly, Mo. When you're not writing, you're a tennis player, correct? Right. As Jim said, I play not 20 times a week, but three or four. But as I get older, uh, I'm struggling to stay average. It's uh, uh, So I don't know how much fun it is anymore. And I walk, Take up lawn uh, bowling. Lawn bowling is so <laughs> cool. Well, right, Marsha, I'm very, I'm very orderly. So I spend a lot of time uh, tidying up after my man. He's really messy. So I find myself licking my finger and reaching over and picking up a little jibble that he's dropped. And that's got it. That's that's the old dude you're talking about, right? Yes, the old dude, Dr. Frugal. You know, I want to just thank all three of you for being part of this inaugural show that I didn't know exactly how this was going to work, but I knew that we could all speak. And I won't always have three guests on my show. So I want to tell my listeners about next week, because next week I'm only going to have one guest, and her name is Christine Conrad. She's a screenwriter, she's a director, she's a producer, and like you, Mo, she's an author, And she's also a friend of mine. We actually met 20 years ago when we worked together at the Westchester YMCA, where I have met a lot of guests that have joined me. And she is a master storyteller, and she will be joining me next week. So as we wrap up this show, I just want you 
the three of you to know that I will see you on Saturday uh, for your March twenty uh, fourth show. That 24th. I will probably have. Pardon me. Yeah, twenty fourth. I was just thinking. Okay, no, no. March the twenty fourth, and I and just 25th. want to. And the 25th, but I won't be there both nights, both days. I won't be there for all three performances. But as we wind down to the last 10 seconds, thank you, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me. Follow us on Facebook. And I look forward to next week's show. Bless all three of you. Thank you. Thank you, Marsha. And counting. Thank you, you guys. It was a blast. Thanks, Marsha. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. 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 This is a story about doers, wings, and neighbors. When you're creating the energy that keeps doers doing, you can't lose sight of the bigger picture. Like in 75, a hiker found endangered butterflies near Chevron's El Segundo refinery. An El Segundo blue. An El Segundo. What are the odds? When Chevron doers heard about the colony in their backyard, they protected the habitat and planted the only thing they eat. Buckwheat. Picky. And we keep planting. Chevron. Finding better ways to do what they do to keep El Segundo doing. Even for our littlest neighbors.